Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. It's a truth that applies to all people across all time, even an 18-year-old from Lexington, Kentucky. I had idols that I worshipped. It's a very arrogant person. I worshipped a sport, soccer. I worshipped a relationship with a girl. And I worshipped myself. And yet God loved me so much that he providentially orchestrated pain in my life to bring me to himself. You see, God ordained suffering in my life to humble me and bring me to Jesus. One night, I was alone in my bedroom with just my Bible. I was hopeless because my leg was broken in a freak accident. A girlfriend broke up with me. My friends abandoned me. I didn't want to live anymore. I was looking for anything. And I turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I didn't. And so I got on my knees and I cried out, Jesus, would you give me that? And he changed me. You see, God will orchestrate suffering to bring people low. And that's what we see happening in Esther chapters five and six. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Esther chapter five. As a faith family, we're going through a sermon series entitled Unseen Sovereign, in which we are studying the book of Esther together as a faith family. And though God's name never shows up in this book, though there's never a moment that says, thus says the Lord, though there's never a miracle that takes place in this book, we see God at work. We see him behind the scenes orchestrating and ordaining situations to bring good things to his people in the glory of his own name. We see back in chapter one that God's people, they are in Persia. They went into captivity because of Babylon. Babylon was taken over by Persia. We see now King Ahasuerus is the king over Persia. He also has the name Xerxes, which is his Greek name. Well, as king in chapter one, we see him as wanting to throw a party for his people. Well, in this party, once he's had too much to drink, he invites his wife, better word, he summons his wife to come and display her beauty before the partiers. Queen Vashti says no, and so she is dethroned, and a nationwide search takes place looking for a new queen. God providentially raises up Esther to be the new queen over Persia. As the new queen, she is a Jew unbeknownst to anybody else except for Mordecai, who is her cousin, who also adopted her and is her father. Sounds like a family from Kentucky, okay? Well, as she becomes queen, soon after, Mordecai realizes that there is a, an assassination plot against the king. Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, and it saves the king's life. The king forgets to thank Haman until just a moment when we'll see here in a few minutes. Well, what's interesting, it's chapter three. Another guy arrives on the scene. His name is Haman. 
He's promoted to be the number two man in all of Persia. He is evil, he is arrogant, he is prideful. And when he does not see Mordecai bowing to him, he gets angry. So angry that he says, I'm not only going to try and kill Mordecai, I want to take out all Jews in Persia. So he sets forth a plot to exterminate all Jews throughout the country. He gets the king's approval. We see in chapter 4 that it humbles Haman and God's, excuse me, it humbles Mordecai and God's people. They're fearful for their lives. And so Mordecai, he clothes himself in sackcloth. He covers himself in ashes. He gets low. Esther discovers what's happening and she concerns herself with this, saying, what are we going to do? And Mordecai says, maybe, perhaps, God has put you as queen for such a time as this. This is your moment in which you get to step in and you get to protect God's people. So Esther steps out in faith and she goes to the king. The king has the right to kill her for coming to him unannounced. But she goes anyways, and he extends the gold scepter, and she is invited into his presence. The king says, what can I do for you? And she says, I've provided a banquet for you and for Haman. The king likes this idea. Well, let's go to the banquet. They go to the banquet. The king says, queen, what can I do for you? Anything, even up to half the kingdom, what would you like? And she says, tell you what. Come back to my banquet that I'm going to throw for you and Haman tomorrow, and I will have an answer for you. You see, we see the sovereign hand of God at work all over this book. And I want you to see this morning that, number one, God is sovereign over Haman's self-admiration. Haman's self-admiration. Verse 9, that day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. See, Haman, he had just left the queen's banquet. He was headed home, feeling good from the wine. He got to dine with the king and his bride, the most powerful couple in the world. But when Mordecai refused to honor him, Haman was enraged. But he controlled himself, verse 10, and he decided to wait for another time to go after him. Well, he gets home and he invites some friends over to hang out for a late night chat with he and his wife. And he decides to have a topic of discussion himself. Verse 11, then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over, over the other officials in the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. You see, Haman loved him some Haman. He boasted, verse 11, in his wealth. He boasted in his sons, his position, his promotion. On top of all of that, Queen Esther has invited him to another banquet tomorrow, and it's just for the king and for Haman. But it's still not enough. We see his response, verse 13, still none of this satisfies me with Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. It's as if he's saying, I just hate that guy that he will not recognize or honor me. 
Well, Haman's wife and his friends, they have some advice for him. They say, hey, why don't you, why don't you build a gallows, say 75 feet high, okay, about the size of a seven-story building. I, I want you to build that. And what if, you, what if in the morning you go and have Mordecai put on the gallows? And then once he's dangling up high for all of Susa to see, you can then go to the king and queen's party and enjoy yourself. Well, Haman likes the sound of that. He's like, that's not a bad idea. Well, let's do that. Well, so you see, at the end of chapter five, he does that. He commissions people to go and build this, this gallows. But God is sovereign over Haman's pride. This narcissist is about to have the high king of heaven turn the tables on him. Little did he know that he was setting a trap for himself. Little did he know that he was building a gallows for himself. And as we're going to see, while Haman is about to fall asleep, the king is tossing and turning on his bed like a fish out of water. We see number two, God is sovereign over the king's sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation. Verse one, that night sleep escaped the king. So he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king inquired, what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. The king asked, who is in the court? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. Now this passage is often referred to as one of the funniest passages in all of the Bible based upon the irony of the events. Verse 1, the king just so happened to not be able to sleep. Over the thousands of scrolls that the attendants could have grabbed, they just so happened to grab this chronicle from the shelf about Mordecai's prevent defense to save the king's life. The scroll just so happened to open up to Mordecai's good deed. Mordecai just so happened to keep quiet about the whole thing and was not out there searching for praise for saving the king's life. The king just so happened to feel compelled to reward Mordecai for saving his life. And Haman just so happened to be outside when the king had his plan in mind. You see, there is no coincidences under God's sovereign rule. The Lord rules over every circumstances, even the sleep deprivation of a pagan king. You see, God is sovereign even over your sleep. Don't miss this. Sleep is God's daily reminder that you are not him. Every day, God reminds you that you need him. God alone is the one who neither sleeps nor slumbers. But every night when you put your head on your pillow, he is reminding you, you need me. Not the other way around. And we see God who is sovereign even over the sleep deprivation of this king. But I also want you to see in the text that number three, he's also sovereign over Haman's self-exaltation. Verse six, 
Haman entered and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? You see, the king poses a hypothetical question to Haman without disclosing who he's actually talking about. So verse 6, this is now the epitome of Haman's arrogance. He's, Haman thought to himself, verse 6, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? I'm wealthy, got a great family, I'm prime minister, number two in all of the land. The king and queen have me over for potluck dinners. Who else is the king talking about but me? So Haman asks for the one thing he doesn't have, and it's the honor of being king. Notice what he asks for, verse 7. Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn, and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor, parade him on the horse through the city square, and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Haman is requesting a ticker tape parade. He wants the honor of wearing the king's clothes, riding the king's horse right down Main Street for everyone to see and for one of the king's nobles to be so humble to walk before him and to declare the king thinks this guy is important, which is actually setting up number four, Haman's humiliation. Verse 10, the king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for, pause for effect, Mordecai the Jew. Dude, I am so grateful for you. There's one person listening and I'm so grateful. I love you, Lionel. The king says, do not leave anything out that you've suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful and with his head covered. Now, can you picture verse 10? You can see all this playing out. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as what you proposed. Uh-huh. Take a garment. Yes. Take the king's horse. Okay. And I want you to do it for Mordecai the Jew. What? And don't leave anything out that you just said. Talk about raining on your parade. The very man Haman was going to execute is now the one who would be wearing the king's clothes, sitting on the king's horse, right down Main Street for everyone to see, and he would be the one declaring, the king thinks this guy is important. I mean, wow. God has sovereignly turned the tables against the very enemy of God's people. Haman's dream turned into a nightmare. What a picture of what God has done for us in the gospel. 
Satan thought he had won by destroying Jesus on the cross when in fact God was sovereignly turning the tables to bring about the devil's humiliation and condemnation. You see, there would be another parade that would take place. There would be another servant who would ride through Jerusalem for everyone to see. Instead of riding on a horse, he would ride on a donkey. People would be shouting his victory. They would wave palm branches in the air and lay their cloaks on the ground. You see, Jesus Christ is the man that God wants to honor. And as Jesus rode through Jerusalem, he had one mission, to go to the cross. For at the cross, he would die in your place for your forgiveness. Jesus goes to the cross for the sins of the world, and he rose again on the third day, giving victorious, conquering effort as the king of all. And one day, he is coming back. He'll be wearing the king's clothes, sitting on the king's horse, riding where the whole world will see him. Revelation 19 and 11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, its rider is called Faithful and True. There's a better parade that's coming. Haman returns to his wife and friends in shame. He told them everything that had happened. And so they declare to him his impending doom. Verse 13, since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. See, Haman can see the, the writing on the wall. His pride has led him to be opposed to God's people and judgment is coming. You see, when you oppose God's people, you oppose God himself. So what are our takeaways? What's this look like for you and I as we go out and live as sent believers out into this world? Let me show you four truths from the, te from the text for you to take away. The first is this. Number one, be confident in the Lord. Be confident in the Lord. With Haman strutting home after dinner with the royal couple, the text says, verse 9, Mordecai did not rise or tremble in fear at his presence. Mordecai would not bow down. Mordecai would not stand to his feet. Mordecai would not flinch. He was confident in the Lord. This reminds me of Daniel chapter 6, where these evil men conspired against Daniel. And they go to the king and say, O king, make a decree that anyone who prays to anyone other than you should be killed. Well, in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel opens the window for everybody to see. And three times every day, he gets on his knees and he prays to the Lord God Almighty. He thanks God for what he has done. He did not flinch. He was confident in the Lord. In Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin, the very people who have the power to kill him. And he tells them, you are the ones who killed the king of glory. You are responsible for the death of Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. 
he did not flinch. And even though they stoned him to death, this is a man who would not bow. He would not flinch before those who had power and authority over him. There may be those who have important roles in this world. They may be wealthy. They may be powerful. But without Christ, they have nothing. And when a bully like, Mor- like, like Haman comes strutting into your life, you don't flinch. Why? Because the Lord is your confidence. You're trusting in him. Number two, be content with God's provision. When we look at the life of Haman, it looks like he has everything, y'all. He has a supportive wife, verse 10. He has a lot of money, verse 11. He has many sons. He has a good job. He's been promoted to prime minister of a powerful nation. And more than that, he has a seat at the dinner table of the king and queen, verse 12. Verse 13, still none of this satisfies me. What a sentence that describes the human heart. You can have a fat bank account. It's not enough. You can have a great marriage. It's not enough. You can have a big family. It's not enough. You can have a good job. It's not enough. You can have a huge promotion. It's not enough. You can have a royal position. It's not enough. Why? It's because you were not made to find contentment in the things of this world. And though each and every one of these things are good things in and of themselves, they make terrible idols. You can have everything this world can offer and still be empty. Fourth century African theologian, St. Augustine, said it like this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Your heart is restless until it rests in Christ. Your heart will continue to strive and yearn and long for anything other than him. But it will never be satisfied because God did not make you to find your satisfaction in the things of this world. As good as they may be, they are terrible idols. Your heart will never be satisfied in what this world provides. There is nothing that can satisfy the deepest cravings of your heart other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living water where you will never go thirsty. Jesus is the bread of life through which you will never go hungry. Isn't it interesting? That the people who have the most stuff are the most unhappy. We see famous athletes, musicians, actors, politicians. They have everything that the world could give them and yet they're empty. They search and they search for anything but the one thing that can satisfy their heart, and it's the gospel. Christy and I spent some time in Ethiopia last year, and we went and had coffee at someone's home. And the home was made up of mud and dung. They didn't have anything but Jesus. And joy filled their hearts. There was nothing they desired more than him. There's a lesson for us wealthy Americans. 
we can continually fight and claw and grab for the things of this world, but in the end, it will not satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. God did not make you that way. You will not find it. It's grasping for vapor. You can never grab hold of it. But if you grab hold of Jesus, he'll grab hold of you and never let go. See, here's Haman. He has everything the world could offer him, but it could not satisfy him. Reminds me of King Solomon, wealthiest man in history. He had wine, women, and song. And yet, when he stopped delighting in the Lord, Ecclesiastes 1-2, he wrote this, absolute futility. Everything is futile. Everything is vanity. Everything is meaningless. If you find your heart depressed, if you find your heart dissatisfied, if happiness is elusive to you, it's because you're not allowing Jesus to sit on the throne of your heart. Your heart is restless until it finds rest in Jesus. Therefore, be content with God's provision, which is ultimately found in his son, Jesus. Number three. Oh, boy. Get ready for this one. Be patient for your resurrected body. In chapter four, Mordecai was wearing sackcloth and ashes. In chapter six, Mordecai is wearing the king's robe. Right now, beloved, your body is sackcloth. You can dress it up, paint it up, move it, shape it, tan it, and tone it. But it's still gonna die. But if you are in Christ, you have a new body coming. One day, Jesus' followers will have new bodies and we will never experience sickness, disease, pain, sin, or death. Paul says in Philippians 3, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. You see, we groan in these tents. We suffer in these corruptible bodies, but soon you will take on a new incorruptible body. This mortal body will be clothed with immortality. Hallelujah. For some of you, your body is falling apart. You feel pain, you are hurting, you are suffering, but there's coming a day in which the flu will be no more, cancer will be canceled, broken bones will be abolished, and dementia will be forgotten. We will be clothed in a new body that grants us access into the very presence of God without fear of death. We'll return back to Genesis 2, the way God originally designed for us to be in perfect relationship with the Lord. But it's going to be Revelation 22 because people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who've put their faith in Jesus Christ will have a new body and we will be with the Lord. You'll have a body in which you'll be in the presence of God without fear of dying. You will no longer sin, you will no longer suffer. And as your pastor, I know so many of you are hurting. You're fighting, you're struggling, and you're like, when is this going to end? Hold fast to this promise. Be patient. 
you've got a resurrected body that's coming. God is going to do with old things, and he's going to make all things new. So be patient. Be patient. It's coming. Fourth and finally, be humble before the Lord. After the parade was over, the text says, verse 12, that Mordecai returned to the king's gate. I love that. He got back to work. He simply went back to his post. He didn't go around saying, hey guys, did y'all see me on the king's horse? <laughs> did did, did y'all see that parade where I was, I, was, I was a sinner? See, throughout the book, we see Mordecai as a man who's humble before the Lord. But Haman was the opposite. He was egotistical. He was evil. He was a horrible human being. And at the end of chapter six, we see him being humbled. And Lord willing, when we come back next week, we're gonna see in chapter seven that public shame is the least of his worries. But there's a lesson here that you and I must not pass up. And this is for all of us. This is for all of us. You have to choose. Humble yourself or God will humble you. All of us. All of us have a tendency towards pride. If you're thinking, oh, I don't really struggle with pride, you do right now. Obadiah verse three, your arrogant heart will deceive you. Pride is right there in your heart, ready to reveal itself in your sin. And if you do not humble yourself before the Lord, God will humble you. Jesus told us this. In Luke 18 and 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Hear me on this. Believers should be the most humble people on the face of the earth. We realize what we deserve. The gospel humbles the prideful. The gospel prevents you and I from any personal boasting. We know that we have nothing good outside of the grace of God. And so the response that you and I have is 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. So we are a people who get low. We humble ourselves before the Lord, which leads us to our impact point, and it's this. This week, plant your face on the ground in prayer. Get low before the Lord. Become familiar with what your carpet smells like. We get low before our maker. Now make no mistake, you can posture your body in a humble position and yet your heart not be humble before him. But if you are humbled by the Lord, it leads you to a posture of humility. But it's not just bowing low before the Lord, it's spending that time in prayer. You see, prayer reveals how big your pride is. A weak prayer life reveals pride. Because when we are not seeking the Lord, we are revealing self-sufficiency. God, I got it. I don't need you. I got this. 
Anybody ever make that comment like me? The Lord humbles the proud. The Lord humbles those who are arrogant. Even an 18-year-old who thought he had it all together. What about you? The call this morning is to humble yourself before the Lord. To get low. To bow down before your unseen sovereign so that as you get lower and lower, Jesus gets higher and higher. And that's exactly where we want to be. Low before the Lord, our maker. Humble before our unseen sovereign. And then we turn our eyes upon a blood-stained cross. And we get lower and lower and lower. And then we look to the empty tomb. And we get lower and lower and lower. And Jesus gets higher and higher and higher. You want to see God do something in your life? Get low. Thank you.